Welcome to this episode of Medlib's Miscellany. I'm Carrie. Hold on, Price. hold on, hold on. You you kind of fade out there a little bit. Are you close enough to the mic? I am. It's it is. Okay, sorry. Welcome. To I this- interrupted. You're gonna have to do it over. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Medlib's Miscellany. I'm Carrie Price. And I'm Tracy Shields. And today we wanted to talk about how we approach searching. In case you are unfamiliar with us, we both search a lot and have a lot of opinions about searching. We search a lot. So we thought we'd have a conversation about searching. And where do we search, Tracy? We search in a lot of places, but I think predominantly we search in PubMed. <laughs> That's the answer I wanted. <laughs> I think we both have a lot of opinions, sometimes strong opinions, about PubMed and what PubMed is, what it does, who uses it, how it should be used, all those things. Yeah, we do. But to be fair, we also search a lot of other places. We have to, yeah. I mean, depending on the topic, you may have to pick a lot of different, different databases, gray literature, which I know you're not necessarily a fan of gray literature. I'm a fan. You just don't like searching it. Not if it's not exportable. <laughs> fair. That's fair. And most of it isn't. No. In many ways. Do you search gray literature outside of Web of Science and Embase? Yes, do. I do. Oh. Tell me more. Depending on the topic. Some topics I... There are some topics where I start with the gray literature. And there, there are definitely times where I find gray literature v- valuable. I come at it from a background of having done things with pharmaceuticals and pharmacology. So gray literature, especially conference papers, approval documents, whether it's from the FDA, Health Canada, the European Union Medical agency or medicines agency, whatever it is, like all of those places, that's gray literature. So when I've worked in the past, whether even outside of systematic reviews, when I've had questions specific about specific drugs, I often take a look at gray literature pretty early on, because sometimes that will lead me to things in PubMed and other places. Do you set that aside for the researcher too, or is that just for your background knowledge? Well, that's a really good question because sometimes both. Sometimes it is just for my background knowledge, but oftentimes I'll present it back to the researcher separately from the databases. Mm. So often what I do is I have a Word document that I give them that has my search strategies with link to the databases and then details about how many results I got. And if I applied any filters that they, that is not, that are not part of the search strategy as I've documented it, all of those things I put in that, that document. And I often have a separate section specifically for gray literature. And that's, I don't necessarily tell them how I found it, Sometimes it's Google searches. Sometimes it's specifically looking in like clinical trial registries or wherever. And we'll link them to gray literature that may be important to them. One of the 
recent examples I've had a request for where that happened was for a a request they wanted to publish a case report on a patient that has a rare disease. And so as part of that, I gave them links to Orphanet and OMIM, which I consider those gray literature Mm. because they aren't, some of that you may get in a PubMed search because of overlap. But specifically for this this particular rare disease, I gave them those links along with links to a couple of patient advocacy organizations and groups that I came across in a, in a Google search that I consider great literature. Because one of the things that they asked about as part of this case report, I think was answered in some forum posts as part of a discussion within this patient advocacy organization, but had never really, there didn't seem to be much talking about it in the published literature. So in that case, gray literature became pretty important in answering their question. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't look it up, but if it's like on an association's website that's members only, you know, Mm -hmm. that's something I'm going to ask the researchers to do. So, And sometimes I just mention, hey, I didn't look here, but you might want to consider looking in these gray literature places. Right. Uh, you mentioned how you get this document together for your team or mm-hmm. your person. Can you talk a little bit more about how you give your search results away? Yeah, so that has definitely evolved over time out of necessity. And I think it is what I present back to them may be a bit overwhelming to a lot of people, but I would rather give them more information than they need because in my experience, they often don't look at it immediately especially if it's for a research project, you know, they'll ask, Hey, can you do this literature search for me? And then two months later, they're like, okay, so I'm finally looking at what you sent me two months ago (laughs) for my request. And because of that, and also just knowing the type of questions that I've gotten from our users as part of being the reference librarian, whether it's by email or, in person or on the phone or whatever, I often give them more context than just the searches. So in my Word document, I list out who requested it, the date they requested it, their actual request, and then I will provide them some information on how to most appropriately get to full text that they come across meaning like use this, use our, uh, our URL specifically for PubMed, because then you'll see our link out and make it easier. If you're going to be off our network, here's how you get access through our third party login system. So I will add even though that has nothing to do with the searches themselves, I will put that information in the Word document for them. Along then with the database I searched, when I searched it, how many results I got, and the search strategy that hopefully they can literally copy-paste into the resource and see what I see with a note saying that 
result numbers will change over time, but you should at least get this many. Do you keep a template? And if you don't, I'm sorry? Do you keep a template for this or do you do it new? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, it is definitely a template. Yeah. And by template, I mean, I opened the last one I did and delete out some of the personal things and just (laughs) save it as a new document. It is, it has been recycled so many times. It's not even funny. I bet they find that really helpful uh, to get directions for full text and instructions for rerunning the search. That seems like it would be useful Mm -hmm. to that. And I've, I've learned the hard way that you can't assume what people know or are familiar with, even with a pretty commonly used database like PubMed. So I will often provide a little more context or editorial support, I guess, is the best way of saying, you know, you'll notice this looks different if you haven't used it in a while. Hmm. Or you need to click here instead, you know. And instead of telling them, Oh, once you get to CINAHL, click on advanced search and then do this or whatever. I will give them step-by-step instructions. Make sure that this is clicked. Make sure this is not clicked. This box is unclicked or whatever. Because it's just too easy to mess things up. Mm, like the equivalent It subjects. gets too comp. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I keep adding more and more information And it looks kind of scary because I often present a very complicated looking search strategy as a big paragraph. And one time had a person say, you know, looking at it gave them hives (laughs) because it looks so scary. But I would rather do that. And then when I respond back to them by email, usually I send them that Word document and I always give them an option of letting me revise it with their feedback if they think I didn't get what they expected or if they want I can meet with them and walk them through how to do these things for themselves all of that but in like I said in my experience a lot of times it's often a time lapse before they even look at it that's true and do anything with what I give them yeah Which is understandable. They're all busy, right? Right. And you don't know when they'll have a chance to look at it. So it's good that you put some instructions in there for helping them. Do you have a naming schema for all of the documents you keep for your searches? Yeah. That's actually one thing I'm really good about is organizing my search results. Because I like to work more efficiently and I often will reuse searches. Because there's... Even if a search request has nothing to do with a previous search request, if they're both on include a similar topic, you can reuse that search. Right. And I don't have to rethink all the terms I might need to think of. I can add to it. I can remove terms. I can check for updated mesh terms if needed. But I use the naming conventions as a way to find searches I can reuse. So what I tend to do is the date of the request, the last name of the requester, a brief statement of what the search request was. And then if it's something where I've 
been, I've done an update to it. I'll add additional parts like updated in the title of the document or whatever. That's commendable. Well, that's out of necessity. Sure. So I'll do that. And it often, the date will match up because most of the requests I get are usually by email. So it is often matches up to the date that I received their email. Yeah. And then the collection, I will name the same as the document so I can match them up. You send links to PubMed collections for your people? Usually. Often I do. Okay. There are some that I don't because I don't want them to think they don't need to look at anything else. I see. Than my collection. Uh Smart. So, for example, if something is for... If they explicitly say this is for an IACUC or an IRB protocol, so IACUC being animal studies, I do not give them a collection because I don't want them to think they don't need to look at my run the searches and run and see results that all they need to do is look at my collection. And again, that's something I've learned the hard way because I realized that some people weren't looking at results they were just documenting that they did a search never actually that somebody did a search right and then only looked at selected things yeah so i'm i try to be careful about that do you do you give results like that or do you i used to in the very beginning and then the as you mentioned my pubmed collections got out of hand so i Mm -hmm. i started just uh either making bibliographies or exporting files or giving people RIS files or whatever. I don't really do PubMed mm-hmm. collections, but I do name every document the same, which is the date. So today would be 20230128 then hyphen last name. And that's how I name everything. So they end up getting a file with their own last name, which I think might be funny sometimes, but for me, it helps me go to file search and say, oh, yeah, this person wants to run an update. I search on their last name. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the date usually matches up to my email. So that works out really well. And sometimes put that update date. But rarely anything about the topic, which I think is smart, because I often forget to reuse searches and I end up rebuilding them again from scratch. If there were some way for me to search my files for a search that I already created, that would be really nice. Yeah, and that was just out of necessity because I got tired of being like, oh, I think I did something kind of similar to this. I don't remember who asked it, though. And then, of course, Outlook is so terrible at trying to find past emails. Right. I don't delete any emails from users, from pages. I don't either, but it's like impossible to find them once they go into a folder or anything else. What kind of what kind of document do you provide them? Huh? With searches. I guess it depends on the person and the scope. If it's a systematic review, they get this giant word document with a table mm-hmm. with everything, like key articles, date run, number from each database. If I deduplicate number of deduplicates, although lately I've just been saying, "Oh yeah, you can upload this in the covenants." Or you can upload this in the rayon, and they'll do deduplicate for you. Um, so they'll get a whole Word document and multiple RIS files, usually, 
and then lately I've been providing the methods as long as we've agreed on the fact that I will be providing the methods and that's something that they need and then if it's for people who are just doing some quick background search then it might just be in the email like oh here's a search I used in PubMed here's the search I used in CINAHL here's a link to both Oh, you're right. I guess I might provide a link to PubMed. Definitely to CINAHL because we can do that with our institutional proxy. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I'll just direct them how to rerun it in PubMed because that's pretty easy, I think. Yeah, I used to give them links like that, but our network security issues stopped and blocked hmm. clicking on URLs from emails. Oh. So I started putting them in Word documents. And then they stopped blocking being able to use URLs for, even from Word documents. Heesh. So I had to just provide them with instructions of how to copy-paste yeah. and run the searches yeah. themselves. It's always good practice. Uh, sometimes people will ask for a bibliography if it's not too much. And then I'll just make up a nice little bib for them with links. So I think that's helpful. I go big or go home on systematic searches, and I tell people that, like, we're going to throw all the terms in there. And then to take the terms out, they have to request it and say, well, this isn't important. This isn't what I want. But to start, yeah, I'm going to do it all because the goal is to find all the available evidence. And on the other hand, if I get a search that's more clinical in nature and it's just like looking, we have a special patient, we need help with this patient's situation, then it's a different all together like you might look for what practice guidelines or case studies or just anything that's been written about the topic but you can be really a lot less strict with your search terms because you don't have to find all the available evidence you just have to find something that helps one thing I've started to do is if you run a search and PubMed says these terms aren't found but I decide to keep those terms I just put a note that I'm keeping the terms because they might be found in other databases just not in PubMed. Do you have to keep track of how many searches you've done in a time period? Oh, man. Metrics. That's that's probably the hardest thing for me. Me too. Because we, we've never... We've tracked them, but we've never had to really report them in meaningful ways until relatively recently. And in doing so, we, we realized that we were reporting them very differently than our colleagues and counterparts in similar libraries were reporting them. So for example, I would say, okay, I've got one request and I did four searches for that request, hmm. meaning four databases. And docu- based on the document that I sent them, right? So I, I got a search request and I did a search in PubMed, Embase, Web of Science, and CINAHL. So that's four searches for that one request. And then I realized in talking with some colleagues that they're like, oh, no, I put down that I did 20 searches. And then I'm like, 20? And they're like, well, you know, all the searches I did to in PubMed to get to that one search. And I was like, Oh, well, yeah. Hmm. Okay. So my search metrics were dramatically lower than what they actually are. 
So I had to kind of rethink how I report and think about how I report searches. You do it differently so now, now? I do it differently now. Now I, I break it down, number of requests I've received, number of databases searched, and then number of searches in those databases. And it may be that I searched four databases and I did 20 searches and 15 of those were in PubMed kind of thing. I never really thought about that. At my previous institution, we just said what kind of project we were working on and how many hours we spent on it. And now I don't really have to report things like scholarship, but I've never reported the number of searches I did. Yeah, we've never really done that either, but one of the way they wanted us to start reporting metrics is based on how a different group did them. And that was apparently how they Hmm. reported them, which I don't find very useful because for me, it's really difficult to keep track of how much time I spend on a request because I don't have the luxury of sitting down doing a search from beginning to end and then sending on on its way. I'm often working on it a few minutes here, maybe an hour here. This day I got a nice little stretch of time and total two hours working on it that day. But it was in 30-minute chunks across the day in between answering reference questions or anything else or meetings or whatever. So it's really difficult for me to even track the time Yeah. But generally, I say at a minimum, most search search requests outside of systematic reviews take anywhere four to six hours minimum. Wow. When it comes down to running the searches, like doing some of the background, documenting the searches, running the searches, providing the document about the searches... All of that, I try to try to do that, and I that may be wildly off compared to other searchers, but that seems to be kind of my baseline is four to six hours, and many searches often take much longer than that because of other factors, and sometimes the factors include going back and forth with the requester because they've changed their topic, maybe right. or. You know, they're, I sent them something and they're like, oh, well, think, oh, yeah, I want to look at this now. This yeah. looks really interesting. Let me, let me take a look at it from this angle or whatever. How long does it take you to do a search? You think? Non systematic review search. Non systematic. I'd say probably equivalent. Sometimes less if it's, if, if it's something I've done before. But you bring up a good point, which is that. We need time to work with something and not just because of time that we have, you know, on the desk or doing other things, but also because it just works best that way. I've had situations where somebody wanted a systematic review really fast. And even if I could do it really fast, I don't want to because I need time to sit with the topic and to think about it. Because very often, and this is silly, I shouldn't even be admitting this, but because this is very silly, but I'll just wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh my God, there's another term for that word. And then that's... I do the same thing. (laughs) I have done the same thing. And I think it's really... I'm so glad you brought up the 
the point about thinking about the search because I feel it's really important to kind of let it percolate. Yeah. And have have that going in the background as you maybe do other things. It's a way to think about the search, but also think of all the terms you might need. And sometimes it just will pop into your head in the middle of something like, you know, you may be cleaning around the house and be like, Oh, I better write this down that search that I haven't thought about in two days. Now I know exactly this term I need to use. I, um, right? yeah, I had a search recently on marijuana and I had every term, every term for marijuana. And then I heard something on the news and it was like, reefer and i was like oh no i forgot reefer i don't think PubMed's gonna have <laughs> reefer but yeah i don't want to look i'm too like if i do make a mistake i'd rather just not know but yeah i do even if i can do a search quickly i don't want to because the best searches come with time and i'm not talking about weeks or months but just time and that's really important to me i don't want to be rushed because if i'm rushed i'm a lot more likely to make a mistake or mm-hmm. forget something important. But yeah, you need time to sit with and hear people talk about it or read about it on the web or any number right. of things we do. That iterative process, right, mm-hmm. of adding a term and then realizing, oh, there's another term I should probably use. Mm-hmm. And sometimes finding those terms is because of looking in the literature and t- scanning through the results you see. And sometimes it's doing some of the background searches and reading. For me, sometimes it's looking at a Wikipedia article about something because that's a great way to find synonyms. Yeah, I do love Wikipedia and I'll never not love Wikipedia. And sometimes teachers tell me not to teach Wikipedia in their class. And I'm like, whoops, I forgot. (laughs) And then I just... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because kids are... Students are using it. I'm using it. Researchers are using it. You are using it. And I don't think it's inherently evil. I use Google. I Google things. Mm -hmm. I Google things a lot. I will often Google things when I have a question before asking a question because I want to know if I can answer my own question before I ask somebody else. And if it doesn't answer my question, then I may ask it. But but yeah, I Google it. And... I think it's it's sometimes treated as a bad thing, but I'm really good at Googling. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm just better at Googling than some of, you know, when I do clinical rounds, I often Google things. You have to because it goes so fast. You have to yeah. understand what's being said. Right. So, you know, it's, for me, it's just, it's another tool. Because you probably have a better sense of what results are credible versus which mm-hmm. results you can skip. I think that's probably the key. Yeah, and that just from years and years of doing this, I don't even think about it at this point. Like if I have to start breaking that down and explaining that process to somebody, I don't even know because it's so automatic for me now as part of my scanning, even results in PubMed of scanning is kind of the constant evaluation and filtering based on the journal it's in, when it was published, the the terms being used, the topic, whatever it is, the study design. 
all of those things happen so fast. I don't even think about it actively. It's just almost muscle memory at this point. Mm -hmm. I do feel like I search with a lot of intuition and not a lot of scientific process. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, all this stuff just happens in the background and you learn over time what you're looking at, how to look at it. I refer to it as my spidey, my search spidey oh. sense. Yeah, I've heard you say that before. Yeah, and, but intuition really is the thing. And it's it's intuition, but it's also just the art of searching, right? You can know the mechanics of how to search and using mesh terms and constructing a search with Boolean operators and how a database works. But it's also just having that kind of intuition or vibe of is this a good search is this really finding what it needs to find and or am I missing something is do I need to think of this in a different direction take a different approach kind of come at it from another angle because I'm I'm missing things how do you do that because I find that when somebody tells me what their topic is I say, all right, this is how we're doing it. And then I do it. And it's so hard if I ended up going in the wrong direction or taking the wrong approach. It's so hard to talk myself into trying a different approach. Well, I think that's another reason why it's good to have the time breaks when you're doing a search. True. Because that might be where you realize, oh, I should really look at it from this angle. Maybe I should use a completely different approach. Because sometimes you just keep running into the same things over and over. And maybe that is the point where you realize you've exhausted your search, right? But it could be that you need to take a different angle. And for me, sometimes that that could be thinking about, okay, again, kind of going back to the reference interview question of what what does the kind of ideal article look like? What does it include? What is it about? Who wrote it? In some cases, it could be who cares about this particular topic. Mm. Like, okay, so I had, I'm I actually finishing up a search for a research project. So I can't really talk about the, the hmm. topic itself. But it is one of those where it was presented in a very straightforward manner. And it was like, we're looking at this particular intervention in a very specific setting and situation. And it's narrow enough that it's not surprising there's much literature on it. But in thinking, I kind of sat with the search before I jumped into it. And one of the things I thought about is if, if there's research done in this area, who's doing the research And what are they doing? Who are their research subjects? And I kind of jokingly thought, oh, it's probably this very tiny population that gets this very specific thing. Thinking about that, I realized I needed to completely redo the search and approach it with very different terms. And as soon as I did that, all of a sudden I found a few things, not a lot, but a couple of key things. And I would not have found those except for completely rethinking the search. 
and taking it from a di- completely different angle based on so you had who to- cares about this? Well, people who have this particular injury care probably. <laughs> and how did they get yeah. that injury? Well, they got it this very specific way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I can see where that would happen. Interesting. Yeah. I would like to report that I looked up Reefer in PubMed. <laughs> What'd you find? 35 results. Oh, there you go. But nothing to do with the topic that I was looking for. There's Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness, Reefer Sadness. Is there any poor person who whose last name is Reefer? Actually, no, but there is the misspelling for refer. They, they talk about refer smokers to smoking cessation specialist. But I think that it. might be a Freudian slip. So, I don't think I missed anything. Yeah, always going yeah. back to check like, oh, no, did I forget something? I've got a question for you. Do you have favorite searches that you've done? Yeah, I've always enjoyed doing searches on physical therapy. Or occupational therapy, which is a, a group that I work with now. I just find it really interesting because well, I like that field anyway. It's nice to see how people can get rehabbed and get back to living a normal life or a, having a good quality of life through that kind of rehabilitation. Um, I think the ones I find the most complicated are, are like ones about anesthesia. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot I don't understand about anesthesia. And I've always enjoyed critical care searches I think I've done a lot with critical care and rehabilitation, so it's a nice joining of the two of the two areas. And for the most part, they're really inter well, they're interesting to look at. So I'm getting familiar with the research in that area. How about you? Do you have favorite topics? Yeah, I've I've gotten I have kind of an unofficial top ten list of my favorite searches. Top ten search requests. Based on that they were fun searches or interesting topics, that sort of thing. But it reminded me, when you're talking about the anesthesiology, it reminded me, I got a search once about insensible losses, which is the amount of like sweat or loss that you have during like a surgical procedure. And it is one of those things that is really difficult to search. Because most of the searching, most most of the literature about it is really, really old. Huh. And it's pretty iffy. Sweating during anesthesia? Sweating during anesthesia? Well, basically, the amount of insensible losses is the amount of... Um, oh, fluid. Oh, fluids, thank you. I was like, what's the, what's the term? I'm thinking sweat. <laughs> um, huh. Like the fluids lost... Just through the evaporation in your skin and things like that. And so apparently, like for really long surgeries, that can become an issue with, I guess, how much anesthesia you give them. Because it's weight-based, but also fluid-based. I see. Um, Plus then, you know, as you're having surgery, you're losing fluid in the form of blood loss and other things like that. So how, how much other loss do you have outside of those things? And it's apparently called insensible losses. So I had a search. I remember that was one of the most difficult searches I've ever done. I never heard of it. Thankfully, I'm not, I don't think I've ever had to do a search like that since, but yeah, it was, um, it was for, I guess, estimating for a really long procedure that they were going to have to do in 
stages, I guess. I see. Oh, okay. But but some of my favorite searches, I guess, I, I have, I don't know if they really break down by topic because they're kind of all over the place. But right. one, of, one of my favorite reference desk questions was somebody asking, they came up and asked, they said they had been talking to a colleague who told them about an article they read in, quote, some British journal about somebody who got drunk drinking tea. And I was like, I don't think you can get drunk drinking tea. (laughs) That's not how tea works. But he was like, he said, yeah, it was something about like the adverse effects of drinking too much tea and somebody getting drunk. And so I was like, how do you even search for that? I don't know. But we eventually found, I think it was in the Lancet. And the the British Journal was a nice lead because, you know, there's a few journal names that kind of percolate to the top of your head. You know, the Lancet, the British Medical Mm -hmm. Journal, BMJ. So we did some targeted searches just for tea (laughs) in in those journals, which a surprising amount of literature in those. And it ended up being... (laughs) a case report on Earl Grey tea intoxication. And I guess that's where he got the idea of drunk was the intoxication part. But the intoxication was referring to this patient who had drunk like two liters of Earl Grey tea every day. And the amount of bergamot in the tea was causing like muscle pain and spasms or something. It was like that sort of thing. But it was one of those... Just somebody walking up to the reference desk one day and being like, yeah, can you find... Somebody told me about this article in a British journal about somebody getting drunk on tea. And I was like, okay. Good and for you for finding it. I'm honestly kind of shocked that we found it. I mean, he stood there with me and we, we probably spent 15 minutes like just kind of poking around trying to think of how we could try to find it. And we were both so excited when we came across it. He goes, I bet that's it. I bet that's it. I'm like, it sounds like that's it. So I feel like I've seen something similar on Diet Coke, like a person who just drank Diet Coke all day, every day. I oh, think wow. there was a case study for that. Yeah. Well, now we're going to have to look it up. You know that, right? Yeah. Sometimes if I'm just being silly, <laughs> I will look up like kimchi or pickles in PubMed, and there's a surprising amount of literature about kimchi and pickles. <laughs> there is a shocking amount of literature about uh, knitting injuries. <laughs> No way, really? <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those things where I was just bored one day. And I was like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> it's just, it's like, how does my brain work? I don't know. And it's just like, well, let's look up fun <laughs> things to PubMed. And, you know, you look up vampirism or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And I guess I had been knitting the night before or something. And I was like, <laughs> let's look up knitting injuries. <laughs> and oh there's gosh. like major injuries there, I, there, I actually have a collection in PubMed, and I'll, I'll put it in show notes, of the things that I came across. And I think one of them was actually uh, some a woman somehow punctured her heart with a knitting needle accidentally. Mm-hmm. Like, she was knitting, and I don't know if she fell or collapsed, but, you know, the knitting needle punctured Yikes. her chest, which... Like, I don't even know how that could happen, but it's somehow that happened. I'll have to come across it. But yeah, there's like, I I expected, you know, repetitive stress injury kind of things from somebody who is knitting too much or crocheting or whatever. But 
Apparently, knitting needles are a major source of injuries. I have punctured a uh, car seat's upholstery with knitting needles before, so I wouldn't be surprised that they can also puncture you. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm thinking of all the craziest things I've seen in PubMed. But... <laughs> there was one I shared on Twitter that was part, that I came across as part of a search. I think it was on, I think it was for something with, it might have been with ENT resident who had asked me about battery ingestion. So, you know. Batteries? That's, yeah. So the button battery, the little round batteries that are part of like watches or hearing aids oh, or yeah. things like that. Kids have a bad tendency to swallow them oh yeah and they can be very dangerous because you know the acid in your stomach or esophagus and you know the batteries have heavy metals and you know they're also metals so you have to be careful in how you approach them and so there's all these things and I think he was doing like a literature review on button battery ingestion and because I did a broad enough search of just like foreign body batteries, like swallowing batteries or something like that. I came across this case report of somebody who had swallowed their cell phone. Oh my. And apparently they were they were high on PCP or something. And they swallowed a cell phone. And the full text, it's worth it if you don't have access to the full text to get it through interlibrary loan. Because I don't know that I've come across a whole lot of articles where they have radiological photos of a very obvious, like, Nokia-sized cell phone in somebody's esophagus. And it's very clear what it is. I mean, you don't have to be a radiologist to pick this up when you see this photo. It's like, Hmm. oh, my gosh. And it was just one of those things that it was not something I was asked to find, but came across in the results of... A very, you know, kind of straightforward search. And it's just one of those like, wow, that poor guy. If you're if you're lucky enough to be able to do some searches ahead of time, like knowing the topic ahead of time and being able to do some background. But oftentimes you don't have that luxury. It's, you know, you're having to do it on the fly or they've changed their minds once they actually do meet you. (laughs) If I don't get a chance to prepare, even if I do, and then I go in. I'm really explicit about explaining what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, right now, I'm going to PubMed. That's database from the National Library of Medicine. Now I'm clicking here. And then I'm clicking here. I th- I, I think when I started in this field, I didn't always do that. And people were like, oh, you're moving too fast. You're moving too fast. But now I just explain everything I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps people understand the process. Explaining what you're doing and where you're clicking, but also why you're doing it. That's true. So I think slowing it down a bit like that helps people keep up with you. Because, I mean, it's it's easy. We, we do this so much that, you know, before somebody has finished a sentence on what they're asking about, you're probably opening up PubMed and halfway typing <laughs> anyway, right? I mean, just... Yeah. That's that's what we do. But forcing yourself to kind of talk it out. And I usually, I always try to preface things by saying, please stop me at any point. It's not an interruption. Stop me that's if nice. you need to and ask questions at any point. No matter what the mm-hmm. questions are. I try to be, for lack of a better description, a safe space. That there's mm-hmm. no silly questions. Agreed. Because that becomes really important in in the 
in the temporary relationship you're building with the requester, but also because it helps establish the trust that they're putting in you to find what they need. I was going to say it helps establish your expertise. That too. Because a lot of times people will say, I didn't even know you could do that. And then they're like, next time they need you, they'll come back to you again because they know that you can do it in like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it will take them 10 days. And I think like the speed and the experience that you can offer, I don't know. And that's how you get people you, referred to you yeah. too, right? You have somebody who says, oh, you're working on this project. You need to go talk to this person. Exactly. Because they'll help you with it. They helped me with my thing. They'll help you with your thing. Yeah, that happened a lot. Still happens a lot. Mm -hmm. There's more that I could say, but I feel like it belongs in the systematic review episode. So I think I'll I'll leave off some. Okay, because if we do a systematic review episode, you're going to do most of the talking. Because you do Mm -hmm. most, you do more systematic reviews than I do. Maybe one of our guests. There's one story I always share in my systematic review class for MLA, but that's the story about the comprehensiveness of the search. Mm -hmm. And the story is, it happened right here in Baltimore where I live. In 2001, there was a trial on the drug hexamethonium, and the researchers looked into the literature and they said, oh yeah, it's fine, it's safe. Turns out it wasn't fine, and it wasn't safe, and a healthy volunteer died, a healthy young volunteer died, And when they investigated it, because they had to, they found that they hadn't looked at the literature from the 1950s, which had several reports of adverse effects for hexamethonium. And so when I am searching for systematic reviews, especially ones where somebody's life might be in jeopardy, I think about it. Like, we cannot have filters. We can't limit Mm -hmm. for language. We can't just say, okay, 2,000 plus because you never know. And that stuff is stuff that I think about a lot. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I don't do a collection for research, IRB research protocols, because I don't want them to think that they don't need to look at the full body of literature. And that is one of the main, your example is the main Mm -hmm. reason that I give for that. Especially, I use that as an example for when I do presentations on how to do literature searching for research. Because it's important that they know you can't just search Mm -hmm. one thing. You can't just search PubMed and call it done. And you can't just say, I don't want to see that many records. I only want a couple results because it would be easier for me. Right. Because what's easier for you doesn't matter when it comes down to these are things that can affect someone's someone's livelihood. And And that's one of the reasons I really am hesitant to put any date limit on anything. Same. Especially when it comes to drugs, because a lot of drugs have just been around for a very long time. And if you say only, only want things since, you know, the last 10 years or whatever, I'm like, well, but why do you have a good reason to put that date limit? And if it's because, well, this drug was not approved before this date, that's one thing. Is there is that drug a brand new thing or is it a new drug in an old class of which other drugs from that class may have literature on that topic? And maybe it's not specific to your drug, but that drug is an old class and there's plenty of literature that you're potentially excluding because you're putting an arbitrary date limit or whatever. Yeah, I 
I can't remember. I think the hexamethonium study was an old drug for a new purpose. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really important. When people do want date limits, I do push back on that. Sounds like you do too. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I ask you enough questions. I feel like I do all the talking and I'm sorry. Well, this is searching. This is you. Well, it's you too. <laughs> Come on. We'll have plenty. We're going to have 100 episodes. We can all talk. Don't worry. You think we're going to have 100 episodes? Um, I hope we have 100 episodes. This podcast was produced by myself and Tracy Shields, audio edited by myself, with show notes by Tracy Shields, and transcriptions by Jen Monin. Find us on Twitter at medlibs underscore miss, M-I-S-C, or email us at medlibsmiscellany at gmail.com. You can find Tracy on Twitter at TC Shields. You can find me, Carrie, on Twitter at Carrie Price 78 Our theme music is Nerdy and Quirky by Music Town on Pixabay. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>